We uh, find ourselves in between two holidays today. So everybody I see, I'm saying Merry Christmas and Happy New Year at the same time. Um, I don't know if your family's like ours, but we celebrated Christmas on Christmas Day, and then we will actually celebrate Christmas again today and Christmas again tomorrow, and then we will celebrate the New Year on, uh, on Friday. Um, so Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all of you. Um, one thing that I know about us one thing I know about us, we bring different things to the table. We bring life experience. We bring um, different uh, preferences, different likes and dis- dislikes, different cultural backgrounds, um, different exposures to different things throughout life. But there are things that are common to the human experience in general. One thing that I think is really common to us is that we people, we like stories, we like them. We, we like to hear either fiction or nonfiction. And, and the book industry, the media industry, the movie industry, they all kind of prove my point here, right? That we like to hear about other people's lives. We like to see the progression of what happens in a story. If you remember in elementary school, um, they would tell us that there are three to five different pieces that make up a really good story. But definitely we need a setup. We need a, the background, the backdrop. We need conflict and we need resolution. And there's something about the human experience that likes to navigate those waters, that like to see those things through someone else's eyes. But the really good stories are the stories that we connect with, the stories that draw us in. And this can be fiction, it can be a biography. Um, I mean, if you, if you just look at the movie theater parking lots over the past couple of days, you'll see that this is true. We like the places where we can connect with story. Um, over the course of the summer, uh, Holly and I and the kids, we started reading the Chronicles of Narnia together for the first time. And it was, um, it was just really awesome to see our kids, the way that they not only heard the story, but created this world by reading it and having not seen the movies, by creating this world in their minds of what the characters look like and what the setting look like. And even later on down the road, hearing how they personally connect with different characters within the story. They were drawn into it. They were, they were able to connect with it and, I, and identify with it. And there are stories like this all throughout Scripture, stories that are true, stories that walk us through the faithfulness of God and, and point us ultimately to the person of Jesus. Um, this past week, as we celebrated Christmas, there are many stories that go along with um, traditional, uh, the, the traditional American holiday. But most of all, we're focusing on this one story, this coming of a promised Savior, this coming of a Messiah. And today we're going to look at a part of that story that's most often it's included with the Christmas story. And it has all three of these parts. We've got the setup that we're going to walk through this morning. We've got a conflict that we see arise. And then we see resolution. And at the end of our time together, I want to kind of see how we connect individually with this story specifically this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And then we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 12 together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Dun, dun, dun. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is also written by the prophet. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We see in this story a lot of things, and we're going to break it up into those kind of three chunks. And the first thing that we're going to look at is verses one and two, where we see, um, we see the backdrop, the setting being laid out for the story that we're about to dive into. We see four main things here, and we're going to walk through these together. We see time, we see locations, we see characters, and we see a foundational question. And all these are really important to the way that we see our story play out and also to the way that we ourselves engage this story. So first, time. And we see two, two issues of time that are listed in this text. The first one, Matthew says, is this happened after Jesus was born. So likely the wise men did not show up at the manger like we traditionally see in the nativity story. I'm sorry to spoil this for those of you who hadn't caught on to this yet, which I know the majority of us have. But the wise men likely were not, were not there. It had been months, possibly even over a year since this had happened. So Jesus had been born and these men had traveled. The second is we see the days of King Herod. And this is really important for us, I think, to really make the Christmas story and to make this account of the wise men very, very physical for us. Because what we see is this is a very important and specific historical point. Matthew is saying that this account, this story that he's getting ready to walk us through it happened after Jesus was born and it happened during the days of King Herod, during a real physical political rule. It would be like saying this happened in the days after Chad was born during the days of President Obama. Like it's a physical locale uh, politically in history. So we see time. The second thing we see is locations and we see three of these here. The first is Bethlehem of Judea. Why this is really important for us this morning is that Matthew's goal in his gospel is to make um, the reality of the coming Messiah very accessible and understandable to the Jewish uh, people. And so what he's saying is this city that had been prophesied, Bethlehem of Judea, this place of King David, that this is where the Messiah had come specifically It names the location. So we're not just talking about a time politically. We're also talking about a a space geographically. The second location that we see is the east. Um, It doesn't say from where in the east. And there are all sorts of speculations as to where these wise men came from. Um, Some people and even kind of folklore say that they come from three different kind of Asian and Middle Eastern regions. But we know that they, um, they weren't journeying back to a place that was necessarily familiar to them. They came from a faraway place. They traveled hundreds, potentially even thousands of miles on this cross-cultural journey. So we've got Bethlehem, we've got the east, this place that these wise women have come from, and then we've got Jerusalem. And this makes the most sense, right? If people are coming and they're looking for a king, they're going, specifically the king of the Jews, 
They're gonna go to Jerusalem. This is like the Jewish capital of Jewish peoples. They're gonna go and they're gonna ask for the king. So we've got time, we've got location. And next is this introduction of characters that we see in verse one. I wanna point out at the beginning um, that we see three kings in this text, okay? We see three kings. The first king that we see is Herod, right? And this is one really interesting character. He is quite the dude. Um, he, uh, he was powerful, he was influential, he was smart, he was bold, but he was also very narcissistically paranoid, very focused on himself. He was a harsh ruler, and he was known for doing away with anyone that he thought was a threat to his power or to his rule. Even some of his own family members, he would do away with because he felt threatened by them, okay? So, um, these men that journey from the east, they come to this man, to to King Herod, our character here. Our second king, and follow this journey with me here, is this, we're gonna lump them together with this group of wise men. And traditionally, we talk about the wise men as three kings themselves, right? And we really don't know how many wise men showed up. I, I think that we identify three kings because of the three gifts that were given, but it could have been three, it could have been 30. What we know is that there are these group of wise men that traveled from the east looking for the king of the Jews. There are some things that we do know about them though. We do know that they were intelligent, that they were smart, that they were well-learned in science and specifically astronomy, and that they also knew the Jewish texts well, that whenever this star rose, that they knew what to do with it. I love this idea specifically, that, that, that God would raise a star and these men would respond to it. There's significance in that. The second thing is that these people, they weren't just smart, but they also, they had means. They had money in some way. They were wealthy. They were able to leave their place, their homeland, and travel for months to take this journey with one sole purpose in mind, and that was to worship this newborn king. So when we look at at kind of like the power and the influence and, and the means that these wise men had, they looked a lot like kings, So this is our second group here. We have Herod the king, we have Wiseman the kings, and then the last king that we have introduced here is the king of the Jews. We have Jesus. This is the king that the wise men, the wise kings were looking for, that they had deliberately and diligently traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles with one goal in mind. And that is to see the man that had been told of of his coming for hundreds of years, that this Messiah would come to care for the Jews, the king of the Jews. So we have three kings. We have Herod, we have the wise men, the, the wise kings, and we have the Jews. There is a fourth character that I want to introduce to our story here that is kind of interesting to name as a character itself, and that is this star. And I'm just kind of like taken aback by this whole star thing in this part of the nativity story. That God would use something that he spoke into existence at the point of creation, however it happened. And there's lots of speculation as to what this star was. Was it a supernova? Was it a solar flare? Was it, um, was it some sort of comet? Was it planetary alignment? And the bottom line is it doesn't matter. What, what happened was God used something that he created to lead people to his son across cultures, across hundreds of miles, across time to worship him. 
I can't help but think back whenever God made this promise to Abraham that from him, from his family would come one who would be the king of all people. And from his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And what does God do? God takes Abraham outside, the, the, the childless Abraham, and he points him where? up to the sky. And he says, look at those stars. See how many stars there are up there. That's going to be how many your descendants will be. And all those people will be blessed through someone who will come from your family. The star. God used it. He created it. Pointing these wise men toward the one who John would call in Revelation, the true bright and morning star, Jesus. So we've got our time, our location, our characters, and then this question. And then this question, it sets the table for everything here. The wise men show up, we have background on them, to King Herod, we have background on him. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, this interaction, it set a lot of things in motion. If verse one gives us the bulk of our background and setting, verse two really sets the stage for the conflict and and, and the scene that is about to, to, to roll out. Read with me again in verses three through eight. We want to look at the response of King Herod. They ask the question and he says, when he heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Um, so King, uh, King Herod's idea of being troubled, we're going to just kind of chop this up a little bit. King Herod's, uh, the trouble that he experienced, that word could actually be translated to terrified, right? So these guys show up, they ask this question about what? Another king. And he's troubled, he's terrified, he's worried. If we know a little bit about King Herod, we don't want, he doesn't want anything to interrupt his rule or interrupt his authority. And so he's got these guys that have come and they have evidently heard about this from a far off place that they have come and they're looking for a king and it is not him. His response of terror and trouble is one of, of being threatened and insecurity that someone would come and question him, King Herod. It says that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And I think if we read into who King Herod is and his character, we can see why they might be a little troubled. If King Herod is unhappy, maybe nobody is going to be happy. How would he respond? How would he act as a result of this question? So what does King Herod do? He, um, it says he assembled all the chief priests, those um, who oversaw Jewish worship, and the chief scribes, those who oversaw the Jewish law, And he inquired of them where the Christ was going to be born. He wanted an answer to fix his problem. He wanted to figure out, if they have a question, I need to figure out what the answer is to this question. If there's another king, I want to know where he is. And so these priests and these scribes in verse 5, they answer him and they quote from from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, so these people, these these priests and these scribes, they were able to come and tell him the answer to what his question was. If there was going to be a king born, they knew where where he was going to be born and were able to tell him. So what does Herod do after he gets his answer? Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He pulls this group of guys looking for a king. He calls them in. And what does he say? He asks them a question. And we see the plot kind of thicken here. 
He wants to know when they saw the star appear. Verse 8. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. So Herod's response is trouble. Herod's response is a reaction of his rule, his kingdom, his authority being threatened by someone else. And so what does he do? He comes up with a plan to fix it. I'm going to figure out where he is. And then I'm going to do something about it. We know from Matthew chapter 2, just a little bit further down in this text in verse 16, that Herod had a plan. Why did he ask the wise men when they saw the star? He wanted to know how old this kid was. If there was going to be another king, he wanted to know who he was looking for. And we find out that Herod's plan, where the plot thickens here, is that Herod eventually sent out a rule for all male children under the age of two to be killed. He was going to deal with anybody that could potentially, even two-year-olds, take his rule. He was going to deal with them. He felt threatened. He told them to report back to him what, uh, what they find out about where this king was. And if we know that he was threatened by the potential of a king, that the last thing that we, he was going to do was to go and to worship him. So we see Herod's response and we see the conflict develop. In verse 9, we see the beginning of another response. And this is where resolution comes into focus. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. These wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where, he was, where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. The wise men's response, the star had led them in the direction of Jerusalem. It made logical sense for them to stop and ask where this king was. And they go and they ask and they actually get the answer to their question. Even though King Herod had ulterior motives, they get the answer. He says, go to Bethlehem. And so they start to go. They journey in that direction. Now, the thing that we need to remember about these wise men is they were not Israelites. They were Gentiles. They were not a part of God's chosen family. They were people from a distant land. And they had not experienced necessarily the faithfulness of God themselves but they had been able to witness or hear of or see the faithfulness of God to God's people. And so when they saw the star arise, they knew how God had proven faithful before and they were able to follow. And when they saw that star arise again, they knew that they could go after it. They were looking for the star. They were looking for God to lead them. That was their response. They rejoiced when they saw that the star was leading them. God had led them once and he would lead them, he would lead them again. These wise men, they went to where Jesus was. They went searching for him. When it was difficult and when it was hard against some situations that may not have been very favorable in their, in their way. They went and they sought out the true king of the Jews, Jesus. And then what did they do once they found him? The scriptures tell us that they fell down and they worshiped him. So this group of men with extraordinary means and power and influence and ability and wisdom and intellect, they come, picture the scene, before this child, this baby, this toddler potentially. 
And what does it say they do? They fell down and they worshiped this child king, God's provision for his people. The king of the Jews had come and they respond to him. They give him gifts. They give him gold, something of of high value and worth, something that uh, frankincense and more, things that smell, spices and oils, things that, that show his worthiness as a king. And then what did they do lastly? They looked for God to continue to lead them. It says in verse 12 that they didn't go back home the same way that they came, that they'd been warned in a dream that God had revealed himself to them again. And so they went a different route home. All right, so we see our story here. We see it in clear view. We know what we're doing with and dealing with in terms of background and setting. And then we see these two responses to, uh, to the king. The response of King Herod, the response of the wise men of the kings. And it's almost like if we're thinking about stories, this is kind of like one of those choose your own adventure books. You guys know those? I think maybe they were just potentially, nobody knows choose your own adventure books. Like four of us. Must have been like an 80s thing. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, so a choose your adventure book is like, it's two stories written in one and you would get to these intersections within the story and you would have to choose which direction are you gonna go, right? And you would always, if you'd read the story before, maybe you would try and figure out if you could go a different direction and maybe the ending would end differently or you would make the most logical next step choice. So at this point in our story, when we look at the two responses to the kings, We want to make the one that is the logical choice. When we're choosing our own adventure here, we look at the wise men and we're like, obviously, I want to do that, right? That's what the bumper sticker says, is wise men still follow the star, right? Like, that's what I want to do. I want to follow Jesus. I want to pursue him. I want to do it when it's difficult. I want to bring him everything I have and I want to bow down in front of him and I want to say that he is the king. That's what we want to do when we read this story. We want to be someone that recognizes Jesus as Lord, as the true king. The problem is we are not the wise kings. The problem is we are King Herod. We are the ones who are built to protect and to guard our terrain and our rule and our authority. So it's not a choice of trying to be the wise king or even how can we push ourselves away from being like King Herod. We need a new king. We need a great king. We need this child king to come for us and rescue us. We know that we're like King Herod because we woke up this morning and that we, I'm gonna make a generalization here, all of us have been awake at least an hour, hour and a half, right? And we woke up and we felt the struggle with desire between what I want and what God's best for me is. We struggled with the desire of temptation. We gave in. We struggled. We had conflict with our parents. We had conflict with our spouse. We were lazy, We thought ill thoughts toward others. We spoke ill things about others. We know that our hearts are bent toward guarding us, toward guarding ourselves. We fight for control. We respond to the pressures of life in our various roles with the desire to conquer and submit. But in this story, we see three kings, not the one in our nativity set. We see King Herod, we see these foreign kings, the wise men, and we see King Jesus. And we are reminded that King Jesus is the one that we need. 
Okay, so this story, this text, it reminds us how we respond to it, we look at it. This text reminds us of what I believe are five universal truths. They're universal because they're good for all people of all times and all places. They're completely true. The first of these universal truths is that God is in complete control. Okay, just look at the way that this whole scene kind of like uh, just coalesces together here. We see God bringing together family lineage, that Jesus would come from the house and line of David from the town of Bethlehem. We see that God brings together geography, crossing terrain to locations. We see God bringing together political authority, the reign of King Herod during the time of Jesus's birth. We see God bringing together cultural differences, these men coming from afar to a place that was not familiar to them. We see God bringing together hundreds of years of prophecy, the foretelling of a king who would come to rescue God's people. And we see God using creation to point people to the true king. Paul talks about this in uh, Colossians chapter one and verse 15, talking about how Jesus, all things were created through him and for him and by him, all things are held together. And I think we see this truth very clearly, even in these short verses. God is in complete control. Now there, um, for us, when we hear this statement, there is... um, There's comfort in those words. And there's also fear. The fact that God is in complete control. It says that that I, I can trust him, that he is over all things. And that I have a choice when it comes to life as to whether or not I'm going to choose to trust in him and find comfort in the fact that he is over all things and he can weave all things together. But then there's also fear because that means that I am not. If he's in control, then I am not in control. And I like to be in control. Anybody else in here like to be in control? And so when we hear this, that God is in control of all things, it's almost like we feel like this this competition is going on here. Just the same kind of competition that we see in our story with King Herod. God is in complete control. The second thing, the second universal truth we see in here is that God's mission is for Jesus to be worshiped. We see this pointed out in the way that the mission of the wise men, the mission of these foreign kings, it was single focused. It was one direction oriented. They were headed in one place and that was to worship Jesus. We don't see just a bunch of wise men that are headed in one direction in this story. We see God's clear mission on display for all of humanity, that one day people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue would worship the true King Jesus. And this happens at Jesus's birth, that men are traveling from places that are not connected uh, culturally with who Jesus was, but they were coming and they were identifying Jesus as the king. And this mission that, that God has, that, that, that we would worship Jesus, this is the best thing that he can want for us. We have this need. We have this problem and we are born into the world with it. Our hearts, like Herod, they are bent toward ourselves. And we have disrupted our relationship with God. We don't live at peace with him when we are in this world. Sin has wrecked that. It has ruined it. 
And we want to do everything we can to try and restore it, to try and find a means to make that resolution on our own. And so we work hard, we try hard, we do things to feel better. We want peace with God. That's how we were created to live, was to be at peace with God. But our offense toward God, it has broken that relationship. And the only way for that relationship to be restored is if someone would come and willingly stand in our place and be perfect for us, to not offend God anymore and to pay the price for our offense toward God himself. That's the only way that peace with God can be found. And this is what happens at the birth of Jesus. Our substitute was born, the one that would come and stand in our place, living in perfection in ways that we never can. Our substitute, the one that would die in our place, that would pay the cost for our sin, what it had earned us. Our substitute was born and he came and his name is Jesus. And God's single mission is that his name would be lifted up among, above every other name on the planet. Why? Because what he does is he took the cost of our sin. He lived the, the life that we had to live in order to be at peace with God that the name of Jesus would be lifted up so that that problem that we have of broken relationship with God would be solved. So when God's singular mission is that Jesus would be lifted up, that, that Jesus would be worshiped, he is like a father knowing our need, wanting the greatest thing for us is for that need to be met by ascribing ultimate worth, this is worship, ascribing ultimate worth and ultimate value to the person of Jesus. Because if that worship, if it's misplaced in any other direction, it will fail every single time. The single mission of God is for Jesus to be worshiped. Truth number three, we are wired for this. We're wired for worship. If this is God's single mission is that Jesus would be worshiped, we are wired to worship. And we see this in all sorts of ways in our own lives, that we want to lift things up. We want to give things value. We want to give things worth, whether it's people or objects or ideas, things that we center our lives around in order to find meaning and value and worth for ourselves. We ascribe worth to other things. We're wired through this and we see it through all time and history. We see it played out practically in hundreds and hundreds of ways. But ultimately, this worship is only fulfilled and it's only satisfied in the person of Jesus. The fourth thing is, we respond to this wiring. We respond being wired for worship only in one of two ways. We respond with idolatry or we respond with humility. King Herod, he paints a picture of what this looks like for us. And I think it translates pretty easy for our lives today. Our idolatry can be a thing or a person or a lifestyle. It can be us just worshiping whatever we think will make us happy at the time, defining for ourselves what truth looks like. We place ourselves on the throne where Jesus is to belong and we worship who we are and we worship what we want. This is idolatry. This is taking that hard wiring for worship and misplacing it. The other option is humility. 
And we see this in the kings. We see that they're capable. They have a lot of physical possessions. But they submit their lives. And follow with me here. They submit their lives to Jesus in worship. So we know that they come with three gifts. We know that they come with gold and they come with frankincense and they come with myrrh. But do you know what else they gave? They gave days and days and days of their lives. They gave countless numbers of resources of wealth to make this journey happen in order to worship, to come to this one spot where they can bow down before this two-year-old to worship him. They gave their lives for the cause of worship. And that causes humility. That causes us to, for that to happen. We have to be able to recognize that there's something, someone greater than us that we are willing to submit our lives to the authority of. It takes humility. We don't read in this text anything about the wise men's worship involving songs. What we see their worship as is giving and posture. They gave and they bowed. And bowing, they're exalting Jesus. They're exalting the king. They're lowering themselves before him. We want to be one. We want that humble response. But we are so often the other. The the fifth thing is hope for us. And that is that we are invited to be a part of God's mission. We are invited into this. Like Logan uh, referenced whenever he was up here earlier, Paul tells us in Romans that it is while our hearts are bent far from God, not just doing bad things, being caught in a bad act, being caught in sin, but when the root of who we are is so completely opposed to the things of God and to who God is, period. It's in the middle of that. It's in the middle of that mess that Christ died for us. That our substitute, King Jesus, came and lived in our place. He died in our place. And he rose from the grave, assuring us of victory. It's in the middle of that mess that Jesus came. God invites us to worship Jesus initially through trusting Christ, through trusting that what we're talking about this morning is true. That this king, this child, that he came in our place, trusting him as savior, saying that he is the true king and giving our lives, every aspect of our lives to him. And then God invites us to worship Jesus continually by trusting him, by trusting his authority, by living lives that reflect his kingship over us, by living for the good will of the king. God invites us to continually worship Jesus. So what do we do with this? How does this practically play out? How how does this story and these reminders, like what, what do I do with that now? It plays out in every aspect of our lives. We're not just talking about like one single journey or what one thing you're willing to give up. This plays out in your living room this afternoon. And this plays out on Friday when the calendar year turns over. 
The question of how we're going to respond to the king is at the heart of every thought, every decision, every action, every reaction that we make. Are we submitting that over to the kingship and the authority of Jesus? Or are we guarding and protecting what we want, what we think is right, what we define in our kingdom as our own kings? On, um, on Thursday, on Thursday, I was at home and um, had been at home for a couple days. No, what was Thursday? Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve. I was at home, had been home for a couple days. And, um, and I, I'm a doer, like just by nature. I'm just doing something all the time. I get it from Scott, my dad. Just bless him. It drives me crazy about him, so I'm not has to drive my kids crazy. But I'm at home and we have been hanging out and... I just like feel all this pressure kind of like building. Um, I'm a doer and Holly is a, a rester. She, when we're all at home, she wants us all together and she kind of wants us all in one place to be able to just kind of like calibrate together to get in the same rhythm again together. And it's good. It's good for me. It's good for us. But it's also really, really hard. <laughs> so I'm feeling all this tension building. I can't even identify like what's going on, but I'm just like feeling anxious and I'm being short with her and I'm being short with the kids. And I don't, I don't even really know what's going on. Holly's we're in the kitchen. She's like, is, are you okay? What's going on with you? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I like feel this anxiety, but I don't know why I feel it. And she's like, why don't you, can you just go run for a little bit? Just like go and let this out and come back. So I find myself um, on the treadmill. I have to run on a treadmill. You can judge me. It's fine. Um, I find myself uh, on the treadmill running and kind of rehearsing these two different stories in my head. And one story is where I am the king of my dominion. And I'm reigning and I'm ruling over our house and over our family and everything's going according to plan. And if it doesn't, then I'm gonna crush it into submission and into my will. Or I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure that my plan is executed the way that I want it to be executed. And then there's this other side of me that's like, what in the world is wrong with you? Like, why would you think that? Why would you put yourself at the center of life and think that everything else has to revolve around you, that the five other people in your home need to kind of live under your dominion and your authority and your, and your rule as king of your house? So I'm like, what, what do I even do about this? Maybe I need to like go and talk to somebody. Do I, need to, I'm a, do I need to go kind of like process this through with a third party or something like that? And then I thought, well, I am one of those third parties that people go and talk to. That's like part of what I do is help people process stuff. So I'm running on the treadmill. Are you guys following with me on this? I'm running on the treadmill and begin to like counsel myself, right? So if somebody came to me and they said this to me, what would I say to them? This is kind of like how I'm going back and forth on this. And the bottom line is I'm holding on to one story that I've created myself to be true. I've created myself to be right. I've created myself to be my standard. And what I am not doing is looking at the reality of the kingship of Jesus in my life that I have trusted him, that I'm following him and all this pressure and anxiety that I feel to kind of like keep my kingdom in tidy order is pressure that I was never intended to carry on my own. That aspect of my life, I get to turn over to King Jesus who is over all things. I get to ask him to rule graciously in my life, in our home, in every role that I carry. And he does that for us. And that is the question that we have before us today. Which story are we going to believe? And what are we going to do with the truth of the reality that Jesus is here and he is the true king 
Will we submit? Will we give? Will we offer every aspect of our lives to him? Every aspect of our lives. Are we going to continue to live in this vein, thinking that we have control over all pieces? The truth is that our lives are a story, as much as we love stories. And our lives are a story not about whether we are a wise king or a corrupt king. Our lives are a story telling how we respond to the true king, King Jesus. Will you bow your heads and uh, just close your eyes for a second? I want you to, to just kind of think through this. How do I, answer this kind of present tense for yourself. How do I respond to Jesus? How do I respond to life? Who is the king in my story? Why don't you just kind of think through those things? As you process this, you're probably recalling some shining moments where you have willingly denied yourself and are following Jesus gladly. And you're also hearing voices of condemnation telling you that you're just a corrupt king that can't do anything different. The good news for us today is the good news of Jesus. That our king, our true king Jesus is gracious He is loving. He is forgiving. He is inviting. And so in the middle of processing this and thinking through all of this, I just want you to ask forgiveness for those times where you've been leaning on yourself, on on your reign and your rule as the king of your life and not depending and submitting your life to the lordship of Jesus. Just ask for forgiveness. Scriptures tell us that we can, when we confess our sin, our offenses to God, that he is faithful and just to forgiveness of our sin and to cleanse us from everything unrighteous in us only because of the blood of Jesus. And then in this moment, I just I want you to confess your need for the true King Jesus. That what we learn from this story, from these kings that it would be truth that resonates in our minds and in our hearts when we walk out of these doors today. That every aspect of our life is something that can be submitted to the king, to the good and gracious rule of the king. God, we thank you that you remind us through the Christmas story, through the coming of Jesus, that you are with us, that you're here in this room, that you're in our cars on the way home, that you're at our homes when we get there, that you're around the lunch table, that you are a king who is with us all the time. And God, for those of us in this room today that have placed our trust in you, Jesus, I pray that, that we would willingly give our lives over to you. We would willingly give who we are, how we live over to you as worship. God, and for those of us that are in this room today, that may never have understood 
truly giving life over to you, Jesus, trusting you for forgiveness and hope. God, I pray that your spirit would do that work of removing the veil and opening their eyes, of accepting the true grace that is offered to them through Jesus. Father, we thank you that it is your kindness that brings us to repentance. You have shown your love and your faithfulness to us in Jesus. And we thank you for that this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.